this morning we do turn to a new chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 12. And I don't want us to completely forget the way in which Paul concluded um, chapter 11, speaking to the matter that God has consigned all to disobedience in verse 32, that he might have mercy upon all. Because in chapter 12, Paul's appeal is to the mercies of God. And so it binds it together. A lot of times we tend to take the chapters of the Bible and um, put a little title above them um, and uh, cordon them off from the things that precede or the things that follow, make them their own units of thought. But uh, Paul is always uh, spilling over from one chapter to the next uh, themes um, that show unity in his writings, that show unity in his letters. And though Paul is coming on to the more practical, one, one, one might say, dimensions of Christian living, direct appeals that he gives to the church at Rome as to how they are to act and conduct themselves uh, with respect to themselves and with respect to one another in the church and how they're to live before God, um, these practical appeals are always rooted in the things that come before, in the teaching that comes before. We don't have a strict division in Scripture between doctrine and practice. Uh, doctrine is the taproots into which the Christian life flows, and we'll ever be taking the matters of Christian living back to the motivations that we find in the Gospel, the considerations that we find in the Gospel. And so Paul begins with the word, I appeal to you, brothers, um, by the mercies of God uh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As all the mercies I've been telling you about in the preceding chapters uh, that God has consigned all unto disobedience. We're all in our guilt. We all are um, outside of the, of the realm of um, uh, favor. And um, mercy comes to bring us into favor. Mercy comes to bring us into of the blessings of this great salvation, and Paul has un, un, unpacked mercies of a galore, mercies in abundance throughout the preceding 11 chapters, and, and now he comes to take those mercies, the mercy of divine forgiveness, the mercy of our justification, the mercy of our access into God's presence, the mercy of God's tender dealings with us, instructing us in the midst of our troubles and trials and afflictions of this present evil age, uh, the mercies of our adoption, the mercies of the spirit that's been given to us as the spirit of adoption, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. Again, mercies abundant and mercies that he's unpacked in ways that ought to uh, thrill our hearts and, 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 and gladden our hearts and, and make this appeal uh, an appeal that we will indeed hear. Uh, because God has showered us with his mercies, his tender mercies. And um, it's on the basis of those mercies, gratitude should be the reaction, obedience and service should be um, what he calls our reasonable service. He's going to speak about our reasonable service, what, a, what accords with reason. It would be unreasonable for you and I who are surrounded by these mercies, who have been recipients of these mercies, just to turn away from God, indifferent. Just to turn away and say, well, what else? I deserve these mercies. You don't, not at all. That's the point of it all. 
None of us deserve the least of his mercies, and the fact that he's showered us with abundant mercies is, is, is that he may be feared. Uh, Psalm 130 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that I might live in your presence, that I might bend my will to your will, uh, to be more concerned about what you think than what I, what I think. Um, that it's God's mercies that have intruded upon our self-will uh, to make us willing in the day of his power to do his will. And so Paul makes his appeal to the readers. And, you know, I always think that there's uh, preachers in the church that, that excel in maybe doctrinal teaching. They simply can be very clear and concise and put forth in really digestible packages. Uh, truth from God's word that uh, is a pleasure to hear and a pleasure to receive. Uh, but oftentimes uh, such people are just so much in the books and so much in the, uh, in, in, in the world of thought that there's very little ability or capability to give a genuine appeal from the heart. And then there's brothers who can really do that appealing stuff. I appeal to you, brethren. I appeal. I beg you, brothers. And I had a guy growing up in the church in New Jersey who every time he, he preached, I, would, I thought he would cry. It, it, he, it's like he, his heart would break if we weren't doing the things that um, he was telling us we should be doing. That he really spoke out of the fullness of the heart in, in terms of direct appeal to people. And uh, it was moving. It was moving to hear those appeals. He couldn't expound the truth of God for the lick. <laughs> he couldn't expound the gospel uh, hardly at all. But man, those appeals were wonderful. Love to hear those appeals. But the wonderful thing about Paul, and the wonderful thing about the, the best gospel teachers and preachers is they excel at both. There's both an ability to handle the truth and to open up the truth and to expound the truth. In a, in a clear and, and, and um, uh, acceptable way, a way that's receivable uh, by those who read uh, their writings or hear their sermons, and yet there's also an ability to um, say, as Paul says to the Philippians, of whom I've told you before and now tell you, weeping, weeping. Be, beware of these guys. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, I've told you before and I tell you, weeping. And Paul, an ability to weep. And to pour out his heart before people in appeals that they would not let this teaching go unapplied or unused or un, um, un, to be unaf their lives to be unaffected by the th truths they've heard, the things that they've heard. Um, the things we hear from God's word need to be applied. And he appeals to the uh, church at Rome uh, to bear, as the writer of the Hebrews says, this, with this word of exhortation, of giving this word of encouragement, and I'll hear it and do it and apply it. And he appeals to them uh, to do that very thing. And again, it's by God's mercies that he makes his, his appeal. Not by, well, you break my heart as a pastor if you don't do that. Although that's not something you should not consider. You don't want to break your pastor's heart. <laughs> I hope you don't. I hope you're not in the, in, the, in the desire to do that intentionally. Or that you'll, uh, you know, you'll uh, really hurt for this down the road. You will. If, uh, disobedience can always be um, 
manifested in loss in some way or another, the loss of a good name, the loss of um, respect from others, uh, the loss of a marriage, many, many things uh, can result from our disobedience. But it's not any of those things. It's the mercies of God that should be the chief thing that um, draws to uh, patterns of Christian living that are acceptable in the eyes of God. Now, I think it all, I also need to say that in, 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 in looking at chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, as the more practical parts of the letter, don't think Paul's not been practical up to this point. He has been. He's been applying truth really all along the way, um, appealing to the, um, his readers uh, to consider themselves to be dead, on, dead to sin and alive to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in chapter 6. Uh, pres- the very things he says here, really a, re- a repetition of much of what's in chapter 6, when he says that uh, they, they are to present their bodies as living as sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is their reasonable service. Uh, back in chapter 6, that's what he told them they were to do. Don't you know that to whom you present your bodies as members to obey. His slaves you are, to whom you obey. Either the, the slave of sin unto death, or the slave of obedience unto righteousness. We all serve some, someone. We all serve something. We serve sin, or we serve God. And one leads to death, and the other leads to life and to, to righteousness. Serve, be servants to righteousness unto God. Um, and, and that, and that appeal is now here as well. It is a matter of serving God in our bodies and serving God in our bodies in a way of priestly service. That's the whole ethos of this appeal that Paul makes. It's to God's mercies to engage in life's activities in priestly service to God. The presenting of one's offerings in the tabernacle or in the temple would be what God's people would do. They'd come before God's presence with their thank offerings, with their praise offerings, with their burnt offerings, um, with their fellowship offerings, um, all to uh, express something of their sense of obligation to this God who redeemed them from Egyptian bondage and brought them into the land that flowed with milk and honey. And out of the redemption God effected of the people from, from Egypt, there was to be this worship in the tabernacle or in the temple that was done in the light of the goodness that God displayed uh, to them. No different in the new covenant. We have these mercies of God in the Lord Jesus and in the light of these mercies, we engage in priestly sacrifice. We engage in priestly offering. We don't bring bulls and goats. We don't bring uh, our, our, our cake offerings or our uh, offerings of, 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 of wine or grain. We bring the offerings of ourselves. Present, he says, your bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, the sacrifices you would bring to the offering in the temple, they would be living when they were brought, but they soon would be dead. They soon would be sacrificed unto death. Well, there's a sacrifice that we're to bring as living sacrifices. We don't, it's not, it's not martyrdom that God's seeking from us. It's not that we would serve him that, so that we would die, 
physically, but that we would live and physically serve him in our bodies. And, and you see, the body is really indicative of the whole of our humanity. It's in the body we live. It's in the body we carry our, out our lives before God. It's in the bodies that we obey. It's in the bodies that we, we serve. And so it's in the body as that, as that concrete manifestation of a heart, mind, soul, and strength given to God in wholeness and fullness of worship that we, um, that we render our service. And we're to come to bring ourselves to God in the fullness of our humanity as a living sacrifice that would be holy, that would be set apart, and that would be acceptable to God. What God desires to receive, again, it's, it's not our money, and it's not our animal offerings, and it's not our martyrdom, uh, it's ourselves. God designs that we give ourselves to him. It's, that's what is acceptable in his sight. What are, the, what are the sacrifices of God that are said to be acceptable in the Old Testament? A, a broken heart and a, a broken spirit and a contrite heart are the things that are acceptable in his sight. To this man will I look, or to this person will I look, to him that is of a poor and a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. Uh, Isaiah 65 or 66 uh, contains, I think 66, that contains those words. Um, this is what is acceptable to God. And that which is acceptable to God, he, Paul, Paul entitles it our um, ESV says spiritual worship. Um, I'm not really, I'm not really impressed with that rendering uh, because the word itself is the word we get logic from. There is something of of, of the mental activity that weighs, evaluates, assesses, and. Paul is saying that the service we are rendering to God, um, we should evaluate whether this is the appropriate worship. It's that which he says God accepts, but is it that which we see nothing less will, will be appropriate? It's a matter of our reasoning that says nothing less will do. Nothing less is appropriate. Nothing less would be proper service and worship to God because God is deserving of nothing less. Deserving of nothing less than the wholeness of our humanity being rendered unto him. And all the members of our body, our hands, how we labor, our feet and where we walk and go, our eyes and the things we see, our ears and what we permit ourselves to hear, our, our tongues that speak and uh, either bless or curse, the members of our body are to be rendered to him, as it says in chapter 6. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We sing, but then you, you break it down. and Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Uh, take my, my hands and let them be, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. And that's the idea. Every part of our body is to be rendered to God. And everything is in our in this this bodily sacrifice that we render this living sacrifice that that we render it's really all inclusive it includes again the totality of our of our humanity and again it's it's that which is in accordance with reason 
That's the, the, the worship or the service. You know, worship doesn't just mean what you do on, on Sundays. It doesn't mean what you do an hour a week. Uh, the word for worship that's translated, translated worship here is really a more general word that speaks of service. Uh, Paul used it back in chapter 9 concerning the service of worship that Israel would do in the, in, uh, that God gave to them. But it really speaks of all dimensions of service that we render unto God. Um, Latria. Um, it speaks of the fullness of our service that we render uh, to the Lord. And so there is this reasonable service that is all-inclusive. The whole, every part of our bodies in the whole of life are called into play in this appeal that Paul is making to the church at Rome um, to consider in the light of all that God has given to you and all that God has done for you, uh, this is what you are to give to God. This is how you are to respond to the realities of the gospel in this act of living sacrifice and service that you render to him. Well, that's the positive part of the picture. But there's also a negative part of the picture. You know, we can be highly aspirational to say, well, of course, nothing less. My God did deserves all, everything, the fullness of my body and every dimension of my powers and every dimension of my capabilities as a human being should be rendered to him in the totality of life and the fullness of service. And yet the reality is we live in a fallen world. We live in a corrupt age. We live with all manners of temptation around us that are ever pressing in upon us and ever looking to make its it's uh, to conform us to its ways, to its will. And so Paul sees there's a need for this negative call uh, to not be. Uh, you, what are you to do positively? You're to be presenting your bodies as this living sacrifice. And in so doing, you're to be careful not to, not to allow yourself to be pressed in by this present evil age that will seek to make you after its ways and after its image. It's the call of the first psalm. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, the ungodly are free with their counsel. They're free with their advice. Back in the 60s, there was a guy that wrote parodies on songs. His name was Alan Sherman. Maybe some of you remember some of the ones that actually became big hits. But he wrote a, he wrote a, a parody. I don't remember what it was on. But the, I remember the word. I remember the words. It was called "free advice." Free advice. And the lines were "free advice." Free advice. Free advice costs nothing, and it's worth the price. Well, the world is. It, it desires to give us its free advice, but but it, it 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 does cost something to heed its advice, because it brings us out of the realm of fellowship and communion and blessing with God. The blessed person is the one that will not allow the world to squeeze us into its way of doing things and seeing things. I think that was J.B. Phillips' uh, translation of this passage in the Phillips translation many years ago. And uh, he, he's, he translated, Be not, let not the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world mold you. There's all kinds of factors looking to shape us. So all sorts of factors looking to make its impress upon us. 
And folks, a lot of times we are all too willing to allow it to do so. And you know, we can think, well, you know, I perceive the enemies over here, <laughs> and we put a label on it, and we know those guys are the people we don't want to let influence us, but uh, we think the guys over here, maybe at the other extreme, they're really the friends of true religion, and you know, a lot of times they're not. They're looking to squeeze us into their own mold that is just as unbiblical, just as wrong, and sometimes it's the thing, people that we think are our friends that are really are not, they're our enemies. It's just another form of, of will, worship, will worship, power religion, false religion. And um, again, it's by their fruits you shall know them. And we're not to allow anything but um, God's gospel, God's mercies, God's provision for us in Christ to map out for us our identity of who we are, to map out our understanding of what our reasonable service to God is, and it's only God's word that can give us the light and the understanding to not to be conformed to this world and all of its extremes. Even the religious stuff that comes along and says, I'm your friend, I'm your friend, just uh, follow me, uh, I'll help you understand the Bible better. And when you really come down to it, they're just as corrupt as the people that deny scripture altogether. Sometimes the people that deny scripture altogether at least know what the Bible teaches on some things anyway. But um, it's the scriptures themselves. It's God's provision of grace in Christ it's, it, itself. It, that's to be um, the shape, the shaping influence, the shaping uh, molding influence in our lives, not to be conformed to this age. The world there is the word aeon, which means this age, uh, this world in, in time. And sometimes the world in time, it, it's always changing the colors of its ways. You know, the things that were vital, uh, were great enemies of the church in the 17th century or the 16th century, the 15th century, may, may not be the things we need to be fighting as much as you know, we think we do today. There's all kinds of new things that the, that the age has come, has, has brought down has brought, brought down the pike, and we need to be aware of, of, of those things as well. Uh, it's fine to fight the battles of the 16th century all over again, because again, we are reformed people, and we know the evils of the 16th century, but we have the evils of the 21st century that we're to be aware of as well. And sometimes those are not exactly the same enemies. The world in time does uh, change its appearance. It doesn't change the essence of what it is but does change the appearance that it gives, and we should be aware of that. But this matter of what shapes us is to be not this age, but the renewing of our mind, be transformed, again, a positive thing. And again, it's not something that we do for ourselves, it's a passive, it's a passive verb. We're to be transformed. It doesn't say transform yourself. Doesn't say get into a self-help course and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, you're to be transformed by divine influence through the gospel, through the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God-shaping influence that we need to be subject to. And so God's in the business of metamorphosing, metamorphosing us, changing us. That's what this word is, and. You're given something of a picture of what that's about in Second Corinthians, where Paul speaks about looking as in a mirror and beholding 
the glory of the Lord. We are metamorphosed, we are changed into that image we behold. In other words, we, we, we behold Christ, we see Christ, we come to know Christ, we come to understand Christ's ways more clearly, we see him in the Gospels, we see the way he dealt with people, we see the way he loved, we see the way he lived, we see the way he, he bore patiently with others. We, we, and, and then we are looking to be molded by what we see in Jesus. How we come to know Jesus. Paul says this whole matter of the proclamation of the gospel brought its transforming influence when you Corinthians were first saved. He says that in chapter 4. He says the God who commanded light to, to shine out of darkness, he has shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've come to see Jesus in the gospel. We've come to know Jesus through the gospel. And our aspiration becomes to be like Jesus. It's always funny to me when we study something in the Sunday school and it really dovetails what I'm going to be bringing in the morning worship. Because it really seems to me that Israel's whole responsibilities before God that we see in Psalm 19, I'm sorry, Psalm 14. We're in Psalm 19 for six weeks, but we're in Psalm 14 for our, well, really the first week. We just did an introductory to it, the setting of it last week. But in Psalm 14, yeah, you might look at that and you see, well, look, at what is that saying to me? It says, who shall ascend into the tent of the Lord? Who shall dwell in, or sojourn in the tent of the Lord? And, and who shall um, who shall be in his holy holy place? Or, I'm sorry, his holy mountain, or his mountain, the tent and the mountain. And then it gives this long list of stuff, eleven items, uh, which speaks about um, what people do. It speaks about the way we treat other people, the way we treat our neighbors, the way we. And you, you read that, and you say, "What's that saying? I, I got to be doing all this stuff before I, I gain communion with God?" Well, no, it's not saying that at all. It's saying if you're an Israelite who has come to know God through his redemption of his people and through his entering into covenant with you, this is what you're going to be like because the whole end of your worship is to be like what you worship. You're to be like God. What we're really given in Psalm 15, as we're going to see this morning, is really a transcript of God's ways, of the ways God dwelt with his people Israel. God was in their midst. That's the significance of the tent. God tabernacled among them. He had pitched his tent in the midst of the camp. All of Israel was surrounded his, his tabernacle. And he led them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And at every point he was in their midst. And because God was in their midst, they saw how God worked, how God operated, the things God did, the way God dealt with them. And that is instructive because we are to be like our God. We are to be molded by the one we worship. And you know, that's part of our image bearing capacity. We're made in God's image and likeness that we might imitate God, that we might image God, that we might reflect who our God is. And the fact is that because of sin, we bring idols into the picture. And idols are images, aren't they? They're images and they're false gods that we worship. 
and we come to image the false gods. We become like the things that we worship. And you see that in a couple of the Psalms where it says that uh, the, the things that people worship are they don't have eyes, they don't see, they don't have ears, um, they don't have life. They're dead. They're dead. And then it goes on to say, and those that worship them will be like them. Those that worship these dead idols, these blind, deaf idols, will become blind, deaf, and dumb, and lifeless. They'll become like the things that they worship. We worship the living God. And so we are living saints. We worship the God of truth. And so truth becomes important to us. We worship the God of holiness. And so we seek to be holy as he is holy. We worship the God who is righteous. And so we seek righteousness. We worship the God of love. And so we seek to work, operate in love. The God of kindness and mercy. So we seek to imitate the God that we worship. And so we're conformed to him, not to the world. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds as we behold our God in the face of Jesus Christ and come to know him better. We're to be transformed by the power of the Spirit into the very same image that we behold. And so it's really a call to be, to be communing with, with, with God and Christ, of, of, of studying who this God is who has redeemed us and saved us and called us and shown us his mercy and his grace and his salvation, um, that we are to be in his word, we're to be in the gospels, we're to be tracing out the beauty of Christ as Christ has been revealed. Uh, John says, we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he's given us a gospel that we can see what he saw. We can see Jesus as he is in, in truth. And so that's the standard, that's the pattern by which this renewal takes place. It's, it's, it's Jesus. And back in chapter 8, isn't that what he said? He said, whom he, for whom he foreknew, he foreordained to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's will. That's God's purpose. And so our giving of ourselves as acceptable sacrifices, of our bodies unto God, it's all to the end that we should become more Christ-like. It's all to the end that we should not be conformed to this age. But we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would um, be more and more like our, our Lord Jesus. And of course the, the, the renewing of the mind is the question of, again, allowing the word of God to determine our, 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 our reality to see reality in, you know, through scripture colored glasses. Um, you know, there's a sense of, I think it was Calvin that he, he would often make reference to the fact that the people of the world have this set of, 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 of glasses that are just distorting all reality for them. And that's what they see life through. We have the corrective lenses of the word of God that uh, by the operation of the Spirit of God have been given us eyes to see, to see reality as it really is, so that our minds would be renewed by the things that we see and behold in our Lord Jesus. And then with the renewing of our mind, there is this process of weighing, evaluating, or testing, or discerning, or testing that you may discern is actually the words that are used, um, what is the will of God? What is the good and acceptable and perfect? And so what Paul's allowing for is the fact that we don't always get it right the first time. 
or the second time, or the third time. A lot of times we embark in paths that we think are is conformable to God and in Christ, and we realize we have just simply mistaken it. We've, we've mistaken a different something that is contrary to the will of Christ for that which is the will of Christ. Um, sometimes that's why we need other Christians to come alongside and bring us up short and say, "Brother, you do not know what spirit you are of." <laughs> um, and that's that's something that is humbling. Um, but it is a matter of learning. It's a matter of having our spiritual senses um, developed. Again, it's, it's not something that natively comes to us when this because we're born of God. And all of a sudden we really have clarity of understanding of how uh, best to live. Right into the Hebrews uses an imagery that's like the, uh, the athlete um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. He speaks of exercise. He says in uh, chapter 5 and verse 11 concerning this instruction he wants to give to his readers about the high priest, the priestly office of Jesus as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's for us really confounding just on the face of things. Now he expects these people to, to grasp this, but he's aware that it's not just a question of being unable to instruct. He, he has an ability to instruct very well. But the problem is, on the receiving end, he's not sure that the people he's talking to have the full ability to hear what he has to say. And so he says in verse 11 about this, this matter of um, the high priesthood of Jesus, we have much to say. And he's written 13 chapters on the subject. We have much to say. And uh, it's hard to explain, but not because we have an inability to we, we, it's not that we don't have a capacity for explanation, but you've become dull of hearing. That's where our, the problem lies. It's not in what we. It's not in our capacity to teach. It's in your capacity to receive what it is that we are teaching. The problem is you have become dull of hearing. Uh, what we have to say to you, you, you're just not hearing clearly. You're not hearing properly. There have been influences that have been brought to bear upon you that have made you not as receptive as you should be to the teaching that we designed to give. He says, for though by this time, this time that you've been in the faith, this time that you've been a Christian, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. In other words, you've got to go back to kindergarten. You've got to go back to the ABCs of the faith. And he says, you need milk, not solid food. You're not able to digest the solid food of the word and you, you, need to, you need to feed upon the milk of the word, which is good. Um, but he says everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. And you, you, by reason of the time, you shouldn't be a child. By reason of the time, you ought to be teachers and you ought to be mature. But he says solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained. Here's the point of it, trained. By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's to be this constant practice, exercising your spiritual faculties. What happens when you're not using your physical faculties? 
they tend to atrophy, don't they? If you're not stretching, especially when you reach my age, you're going to cramp sooner or later. Something's going to happen that's not a good thing if you're not using your faculties, if you're not stretching your muscles, if you're not using them. If you don't use them, you're going to lose them, as, as, as it says, as, as we say. Uh, and so just as physically, we need to train ourselves. And we're just going to sit around and you know, feed upon sugar all day. Uh, we're not going to be ready to, to take in uh, the proper nutrients we need when dinner comes. Um, and that's in the spiritual life. It's the same thing. If we're feeding upon the dainties of the world, if we're feeding upon you know, constant entertainment, if we have our if we have our nose in Netflix, you know, like twenty four seven, just waiting for the next thing that they're they're showing, it's not in your interest spiritually to be feeding your soul that stuff continually. Now, for diversion, fine. I mean, I've told you I started to read detective novels, and I love them. I really do. I could spend the day reading good detective novels, but I don't. But I don't because it's not in my interest spiritually to do that. But for the point of diversion, I do. There's no story that was told about the um, Apostle John that one of his uh, disciples, it may have been Polycarp that tells the story, that he came upon the Apostle John in his old age, and John was, um, well, he was shooting clay pigeons is what he was doing. And you might think, well, excuse me, John, you're an apostle. Why are you out there preaching? Why are you out there studying? Why are you out there praying? You're shooting clay pigeons? Well, he may have been shooting them, I imagine, with a bow and arrow. And, and, and he said, you know, take the bow that's in my hand. If it was constantly taut, if you stretched it back and you just kept it in that position, pretty soon it's going to break. And he says, so it is with the mind. He says, if, all, if my mind was always just pulled back, taught, used to the full extent of my capacities, I break. I break. As human beings, we need relaxation. We need, Jesus said to his disciples, come aside and rest for a while. But not for the sake of just having rest to be the constant default position of our souls, but to get back into the work of studying, of reading, of praying, of doing the things we're called to do spiritually. And, and so God gives us a lot of things that we can utilize as diversions as, that are help, helpful and helpful, but it's always going back to the using our spiritual faculties that he's given to us. Just as we have spiritual faculties, we have to have constant practice with our spiritual faculties. We have to, you know, get the prayer bones in use. We have to pray on a, on a consistent basis. We have to meditate on the word of the Lord on a consistent basis. Um, we have to utilize our ability to convey the truth of God to others in our words of testimony or our words of uh, encouraging others, telling them the things we have learned. We need to be involved in the work of spiritual activities so that the soul is constantly engaged not always continually you know, again you need the rest and relaxation come aside and rest a while Jesus says to his, to his disciples but we, there needs to be that that 
regular engagement in our souls with spiritual realities. To use our powers of discernment and to train them by constant practice so we might be able to distinguish. And the, and the things we distinguish here, distinguishing good from evil, um, I think the original says something like distinguish the things that differ. Does the King James say that? Maybe we have the King James? Does it say distinguish the things that differ? No, it doesn't say that, King James? No one has the King James. I'm sorry? I don't know what verse we're on. What verse? In verse... Uh, 14, the end of 14. 14, okay. And it says, But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Okay, good and evil. Uh, in Philippians it says, uh, um, Anyway, I'm, I'm going down the track. It's, it's looking to say that in the process of discernment, we make a distinction not just between good and evil, but between good and better than good. And then even from that, from the things that are better, the better and the best. And uh, there's a, a statement that I think it's in Paul's letter to the Philippians where he uses that, that, that word, I think the King James translated to distinguish the things that differ. And that's the idea of, make, of seeing the differences, not just between good and evil. I mean, that's easy. <laughs> The, to make that distinction, but even among the things that are good, well, it's better. I mean, why would you choose the good if you could get something better? All right? And if why would you choose just the better if you could get the best? That's the point. Doris. Yes, Pastor, there is something, I don't know if it's, it's uh, afraid, is the right word to uh, try to say it, but sometimes I, that's how I feel when I see people they know the Bible and they know how to preach the Bible and they preach and they call up a lot of people to Christ and then they just fall down like nothing. And, and just to be listening and study the Bible and, and you know constantly be like praying or reading the Bible, studying, asking for God for for his knowledge and forgiveness and grace. And every time that, that I might do something that I know I'm not supposed to be saying or do it, and then I, I get, uh, I don't know if I said afraid, be afraid, that be one of these person that just fall down from the grace of God in, in just in, in one moment. Mm -hmm. And I know it is, a, it is a forgiveness, but it's really easy us to read it and say it, and then see how big men of God it just I think the problem that you see in other people is that sometimes we get so involved with activities and our motivation comes into play when the eyes of others are upon us. And so if you're involved in a, in a, in a group of people that go out witnessing, yeah, you go out and you do it. You, 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 you learn. You learn an activity. An activity that you see other people do and then you imitate what they're doing but if it's not ever born out of an inward um, 
motivation that is for you something that's God-centered. It's just referencing others, it's just external things that uh, you know. I think people can easily fall. I knew a guy that he used to go into the city of New York every weekend, and he'd group, get together with a group of Christians, and he'd um, he'd witness on the streets, and then when he had that activity done, he'd he'd go up to the Bronx, and he'd uh, he'd gamble playing cards all night and, and drinking drinking alcohol. And that became something of a pattern of life. But he got into a, uh, um, an activity, external, with the eyes of other people upon you. And it's easy to measure up to what they are expecting you to be doing, or you're looking to lead them in some activity in order to appear spiritual to them. But it's no question of what are you before God? Is what you would appear to be before other people what you are before God? That's the question. And that's the question a lot of times people don't even ask of themselves. What am I in the presence of God? I think that's where Paul is, 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 is moving us. Is, is to say to us, we are only what we are in God's presence. Is presenting ourselves, living sacrifices to Him. There is this God-centered perspective that is what is at the center of Christian living. It's not just centered in others. It's not just centered in, well, what people expect of me. What does God design for me? What does God desire of me? What is acceptable service in his sight? So, to me, that's where the Christian life is to be lived. You know, it's not just a question of what you do. It's a question of why you do it. And sometimes the reason people do things is to keep up appearances or to impress other people, to have a repu- uphold a reputation for spirituality. But it's not, it's not born of love to God and love to others. Because it's not something that's really centered in the mercies of God and Christ. It's not a question of re- rendering acceptable service into, in His sight. So to me, that's where the Christian life really um, is focused. It's focused upon the eyes of God, not the eyes of men. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's tragic because you know sometimes people can really fool you. <laughs> you know, you really think they have it all together. You say, "Oh, that's the ideal family." I mean, Dateline's full of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, 2020, all the, all the uh, television shows that report uh, families that uh, kill their spouses and such. And uh, those were all ideal church-going families. And they really kept their appearances up before people. In fact, a lot of times why they kill their spouse is because the church won't accept them if they divorce. <laughs> but if but if he dies, hey, I'll get pity. I'll get pity from the church. And they murder, actually murder, with those thoughts in their head. Because they really don't have their minds focused in upon God's standards of right and wrong and good and evil, of biblical standards of morality. Their standards of morality is what's acceptable in the sight of other people. And so it's all external, it's all keeping up appearances, and a lot of times that's just the high road to, you know, horrific acts. Horrific, surprisingly horrific acts. But in a real sense, 
churches have set people up for that sort of thing. Because everything is external. And everything is feel good. And everything is entertainment. And everything is everything, anything but exposition of scripture. Directing people to the, to the standards of God. And the righteousness of God. And the holiness of God. And the truth of God. Yeah, it's pathetic, the, world, the Christian world that, that's out there. But that, I mean, when, when what's popular in the, in the world today is the megachurch, with all of the philosophy behind how you get churches large and big, and, which is fun, it's entertainment, it's having the rockinest band, it's all sorts of things that are the formula for doing that, having... Uh, it's and it's all worldly. It's it's not rooted in biblical teaching of how the church is to be, it, it, how Jesus builds his church. It, it's how they build the church in accordance with human standards and Madison Avenue techniques and what works. Because the thing they they use to, to that works it works for Jewish synagogues. It works for Muslim mosques. It works for you know. Amway, it works for, you know, it's just human answers to how you grow things and make it big and how you make it popular and how you get a lot of people on board and enthusiastic with a project. But, it's, but that's not the church. That's simply not the church where, where God's word is not being taught and where people are not using their spiritual faculties. Um, to hone them and to develop them, to be able to discern good and evil in the sight of God. That's all the difference in the world. Living life in the sight of God and developing our spiritual faculties to his glory. Um, anyway, we've kicked this around, I think, sufficiently. And may God be pleased to give us wisdom to heed Paul's plea. It's, it's a plea. He's pleading with us. Brothers, sisters, whatever you do, Make sure you do this. By the mercies of God, I plead with you. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might prove by the exercise of your spiritual faculties the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. May God be pleased to bless us with these thoughts and let's then go to him in prayer. Father, it's perhaps easy to criticize the things we see around us in the church. And yet, Lord, we, we really want to be faithful to you. We really want to turn our eyes upon our Lord Jesus, to look full into his wonderful face, and to have the, the pleasure and the good that comes from constant exposure to the things of Christ, to the realities of the gospel, the mercies of God, that would move us in the direction of regular trafficking in the things of the Spirit, presenting our, ourselves before you to be engaged in those priestly activities of worship on a daily basis, of, 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 of endeavoring to turn a deaf ear to all of the wisdom and counsel of the, of the world in rebellion against you, and to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the things that make for spiritual growth and spiritual thriving and this 
the using of our spiritual faculties, that they would develop and they would become more and more attuned uh, to your ways and more and more attuned to your will. So we pray that you would hear our prayers to give us hearts to heed these, ex- these words of an exhortation, uh, to be concerned in our daily walk before you, uh, to live the Christian life in a gospel way, in a way that's faithful to the truths that you've revealed about yourself and your son and your salvation, and that we would be highly motivated day by day uh, to live for you, to, to walk with you, to learn from you, and to be conformed to your image in all things, as we'd ask for these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Irene, we'll be back on at 11. I think there's others that are going to join us then. Okay, thank you, Pastor. Okay. Thank you. 